Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. All right, if you have a Bible, open it with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. So the other day, uh, just this week, I was having lunch with some, some guys here from the church, and we just started talking. I'm not really sure how we got on this topic, but we started talking about all the weird stuff that people will keep in their refrigerator or their freezer um, that maybe doesn't belong. Um, like, here's an example. My family, we keep all of our batteries in the freezer. Anybody else do that? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Well, um, I don't know why we do it either. Uh, my family always did it. My parents did it, so we do it. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense, though, because I think harsh uh, weather conditions are bad for batteries, but, so probably shouldn't keep it in the freezer. I started telling them at lunch about how my grandma always kept a, a mason jar full of cash in her freezer. Anybody, anybody do that one? No. no, okay, back here, okay. Uh, so I'm not really sure why she did that. I always just thought, like, I think I understood if there was a fire that the freezer wouldn't burn or something and the cash would still be good. So that's why she did it. But whenever I said that, somebody goes, cold, hard cash. And I thought, that's where the statement comes from, right there. Um, I started digging around and looking on the Internet, and turns out there's a lot of theories on the origin. Grandma's freezer ain't one. Right? So I'm not sure where that statement comes from, but that's not it. And that's our thing. There's a lot of things that we say in our language and in our world and our culture that we don't really understand where it came from or why we say it, right? There's a lot of them. If you started thinking about it, um, you'd be like, why do we say that? Like, got to let the cat out of the bag? Um, that, I don't understand that one, but that's one that we say. There's a lot of them. And not only things that we say in our culture, but also, like, when it comes to the Bible, there's things that um, we say or there's passages of of scripture that maybe we don't understand its real meaning or why it's there, but we just use it for different purposes. I've got a couple of examples here I want you to see. The first one is Genesis 31.49. Can you put that one up on the screen for me? Genesis 31.49 is a lot of times you'll see it on like friendship bracelets or something like that. And so if you want a friendship necklace with Genesis 31.49, you can go on Amazon and you can buy that one. And that verse says, may the Lord watch between you and me while we are apart. That sounds like friendship. That sounds good, right? Well, in context, that's Uncle Laban talking to Jacob saying, if I ever see you on my land again, I'm going to kill you. That's what that verse is from. (laughs) Then there's Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. It's kind of hard to see right there, but that is inscribed inside of a wedding Band. A lot of times you'll see Ruth 116 used in weddings, and I've seen it on a backdrop behind the, the bride and groom as they're getting married or inscribed in wedding rings and stuff. Anybody know what Ruth 116 is? You got it memorized or you got it tattooed or something like that? No? That's the verse that says, Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That's that verse, right? Has nothing to do with a man and wife being married. It's actually a woman saying that to her mother in law. Right? But we just do that. We do that with different scripture passages. One of the most famous ones comes out of our text today, Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, 11. You probably have that one memorized, don't you? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Right? 
plans, uh, plans for, your, for your good, not for disaster, but for a future and a hope. And we'll say that and we'll quote it with like excitement or we'll say like, you know, the Lord, he wants me to prosper and he wants me to be successful and healthy and, and all of those different things. And, but can I tell you the context of that verse? Jeremiah 29 was written to a group of people that had just been ripped from their homes, saw their family and friends slaughtered, and their city burned and destroyed. That's who this verse is to. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. <laughs> Not for disaster, but for future and hope. It's written to these people. That's the reason context is so crucial. Like when you're trying to understand a Bible text, Bible 101 says you gotta know the context of what's happening. Because you can't understand what it means for your own life if you can't understand what it meant for the people it was said to. Does that make sense? There's a statement that says every heretic has a verse. And a lot of times what people will do is they'll take a verse like this and they'll just pull it out of context and they'll use it to say whatever it is they want it to say. But in context, it's so much more powerful. That's the reason every week I stand up here. And if you notice, before we read the text, I always want you to understand the context. Context is, is crucial. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, this passage is written to refugees, exiles. What's an exile? The definition of exile is someone who has been forced away from their home. That's what an exile is. And in Jeremiah 29, verse 1, it gives us the whole context for this letter that we're about to read. It says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, so if you remember your Old Testament history at all, there's a portion where King Nebuchadnezzar comes in from Babylon and he ransacks Jerusalem, destroys it, kills a bunch of people, burns the temple, and then brings a group, brings a remnant, brings an exile back to Babylon some 500 miles away from home. And that's who this letter is written to. And as we're gonna see in this letter straight from God, it's gonna say, settle in. Like you're forced from home, but settle in. You're gonna be there 70 years. This is a difficult letter to take in, right? This is difficult. So for them, they had to be asking the question like, I'm a citizen of Jerusalem. How am I supposed to live in this wicked city of Babylon? I've been exiled, I've been ripped from my home, I've been plopped down in Babylon. How am I supposed to live? That's what they're asking. And, and the question that you and I are asking, whether we realize it or not, and, and the question that this text is going to answer is, how do I live as a citizen of God's kingdom in this world? And maybe you've wrestled with that even this week. Like, you're facing things, you're facing a hard week, you're facing difficult things, and you're going, man, how am I supposed to live as Christ wants me to live in the brokenness and the sinfulness of this world? This text is going to help us address that. So before we look at it, before we read it, I want us to pray and set our minds and our hearts in the right direction. And so I'm going to pray for all of us, and I want you just to take a moment right where you sit and just ask God simply, God, would you speak to me this morning? Let's all pray. God, we want to ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is speak directly to our hearts. Would you, ch would you change us and shape us and mold us more into the likeness of Jesus this morning? Would you illuminate this text? Show us what it means, how it applies to our lives, how we are to live as citizens of your kingdom, but 
still fully engaged here in this world. Would you help us to see what that looks like this morning? Would you help us to follow? We love you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, all right Jeremiah chapter 29, start in verse 4 with me. It says, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported. There's a couple of big things that just happened. First, God says, I'm the one saying this. This letter comes straight from God, and he says he's the one who deported them. I know up in verse 1 it says that Nebuchadnezzar had deported the people from Jerusalem to Babylon, but in reality, God was behind it all. Like nothing catches him off guard. He's, he's actually orchestrating this whole thing. And it says a few times in this letter from God to the exiles that he's the one that did the deporting of his people to Babylon. Look at verse five. This is what he tells them to do. This is how you're to live in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourself and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 10. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. What we have here in this text is a letter straight from God to the people he deported to Babylon. It's the people exiled, ripped from their homes, now living in Babylon. And I want us just to walk through this letter and again, see what it meant for them so that we can see what it means for us. This is how he instructs them to live. This is the instructions. First, he tells them, live and thrive in Babylon. Live and thrive. Verse five and six says, basically, settle in. Like you're gonna be there for the long haul. He tells them, build houses, plant gardens, marry someone, have some children, have some grandchildren. All of those things imply a long time, don't they? If you've ever built a house, you know what I'm talking about. It takes a long time. If you've ever planted a garden and waited for the things to come forward, or if you've ever had children, you're waiting for them to be born, and especially, I can't imagine, waiting for grandchildren. Like, we're talking a long, long time. What he's saying is settle in. And if you're someone who's been ripped from your home Hey, settle into the new place is like the last thing you want to hear, isn't it? You don't want to hear that. Settle in. Imagine how they're feeling. Like they're scared. They're anxious. They're homesick. They're missing loved ones. Places where they used to like to go to have fun and 
where they bought their groceries and like everything about their life has been disrupted. And so they're, they're homesick. And so as an exile, you're like, all right, the Lord has sent us a letter. <laughs> Let's see what it says. I hope it says I'm about to get you out of there. But that's not what it says. It says settle in. And then the letter actually gets worse. Verse seven. It says pursue the well-being of the city and pray for them. Pray for Babylon. What are you saying? Be good citizens. Like contribute to the well-being of the city. And not only that, pray for Babylon. <laughs> Keep in mind who he's talking about. Keep in mind who Babylon is. This is the army who came in, ransacked their city, burnt down their homes and their temple, destroyed the city, killed their loved ones, and then ripped them away from home and planted them now in Babylon. That's who he's talking about and saying, pray for them. This is the enemy. You don't want to hear that. You want to hear God say, I'm about to destroy your enemy. Now he's saying, pray for them. Right? And you're like, that, that would, that's, that's crazy. I wonder what it would look like to actually do that. Like, what does it look like for them to actually follow the instructions of this letter? Well, what's cool about the Bible is we have an example. Just read the book of Daniel. Daniel and the boys, as I like to call them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rack, Shack, and Benny if you're a VeggieTales kid, um, we see their life in Daniel chapter 1 through 6. And so if you are curious, what does it look like to follow the instructions of this letter in exile this afternoon? Read those six chapters. It's an amazing, amazing story. We see them follow these instructions. And we know, what's cool is we know that Daniel heard this letter, Jeremiah chapter 29. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. We know that Daniel and the boys, at some point, they heard this letter from God read to them in exile. And as you read their story, it's evident. The way that they lived in Babylon shows us exactly the way God is telling them to live. They assimilated into the culture, right? They, they worked hard for the good of the city, and they prayed a lot. That's what they did. So in Daniel chapter 1, if you were to read that book today, in Daniel chapter 1, they get drugged into Babylon, and you're going to see that they, they assimilate into the Babylonian society. They integrate in. They take Babylonian names. They go to Babylonian school and take the education. And then they also get jobs. And what's cool about it is they didn't just kind of get into culture. They excelled. They were really stinking good at being Babylonian kids. Daniel chapter 1, verse 19, the king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Rakshak and Benny again. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. You see it? Like they were really good at this stuff. They went all in. They integrated into society. Not only that, we know that Daniel had a strong and loving relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. The king, 
who ripped them away from home. Daniel kind of becomes his right-hand man, and they have this great relationship. Daniel's praying three times a day. You have to imagine he's praying for the king in these moments, but we know that they have a great relationship. In Daniel chapter 4, you see Daniel preach to Nebuchadnezzar, and what I believe you see in Daniel chapter 4 is you actually see the salvation of King Nebuchadnezzar because of this relationship. Some people will debate that and go, I don't know if he's really saved or not, and I guess we don't know, but Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37 sure looks like a salvation statement from King Nebuchadnezzar. All because these four Hebrew boys listened to this letter. The king declares salvation. And so like, just a sub point, like going through life, you're going to face really difficult things, but God may be wanting to use you right in the middle of that exile. In fact, a guy named Dell Davis says this, sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. And that's what you see in the life of Daniel. They they fully integrated into society, assimilated, but they also knew where to draw the line. They also knew where to draw the line between culture and society and their ethics and their religious relationship with the one true God. Multiple times, they just won't cross a line. It's the stories you're thinking of whenever you think of Daniel. Daniel chapter three. They're told to bow down before this fake God, this fake uh, statue, and Rakshak and Benny are just like, can't do it, not gonna do it. And what happens? They get thrown into a furnace. In Daniel chapter six, there's this whole plan to try and get Daniel that's put into place that you're not allowed to pray to anybody other than the king. And Daniel's like, yeah, it says he heard the decree and went straight up to his room to pray just as he always had. (laughs) It's like, I'm drawing the line. I've gotta follow the Lord, which is what Jeremiah chapter 29 verses eight and nine says. Don't listen to false teaching. Draw the line somewhere and we see them do that here. And guess what? God protects them in both of those instances. God protects them, which leads right into the next part of our letter in Jeremiah chapter 29. First he says, live and thrive. Next he says, trust me. That's how you live in exile. Trust trust me. And this is the famous part. This is where he says, I know the plans I have for you. God says, I've got plans for your good. I've got plans for your good. But nobody wants to talk about verse 10. When it says, but before that, there's going to be 70 years. When 70 years are complete. I told you a couple of weeks ago that God is far more interested with the ultimate in your life than the immediate. And we see that right here. 70 years, it could be literal 70 years. Actually, the first returners back from exile was somewhere around 66 years. So probably what it means is in the Old Testament, 70 years was a symbol that represented a lifetime, an entire lifetime. Psalm chapter 90, verse 10, Isaiah chapter 23, verse 15, we see that 70 years equaling a lifetime. So basically what God is saying in this moment is most of you are going to die in Babylon. Most of you are going to die in Babylon. And if you're reading that, you're in exile reading, like, we got a letter from God, what's it say? And it says that, you're like, ah, surely we can come up with a better plan than that, you know? Like, I don't love love that plan. 
But what you see in this plan from God is that God's plan is not without pain. And I don't know what you're walking through or what you have walked through, but you probably know that to be true, don't you? That a lot of times walking right in the middle of God's plans, you still experience pain. And this letter written to the exiles was meant to be comforting to them. And you're like, how in the world is that comforting? But you're going to wait 70 years before I restore you. You're going to be there. So set up shop. Plant some plants. <laughs> you're going to be, how is that comforting? Don't, don't miss what's happening here. The comfort doesn't come from the plans. In fact, he doesn't even really tell them the plans. The only detail of the plans he gives them is 70 years. That's not a fun detail. So the comfort isn't in the plans. The comfort comes from who knows the plans. And what it says there is God says, I know the plans. I know the plans that I have for you. See, God knows. And they can focus on today because they know that God knows the plans for later. That's how they have hope right now. God doesn't promise to immediately free them of their suffering or their time in Babylon, but he does promise future restoration. He provides hope in the middle of the pain. In verse 13, he says, all those who seek him will find him. And verse 14 says, those who find him will be restored. So that's the letter. That's the letter written from God to the exiles in Babylon. And it's like, what does that mean for us today? Well, have you ever felt like an exile? Have you ever felt like an outsider? Like in your day or, or, or just the week that you're having, maybe you just feel like, man, I just feel like an exile, feel like an outsider here. Have you ever moved away from home and been labeled an outsider? I have. About six years ago, God called me and my family to leave our home and move far away. Leave friends, leave family, leave everything that we've ever known and move away. I understand what this means. If you've ever moved away, I'm sure that you understand this as well. Or if you've ever been in a season of just going, man, I don't even know which way is up right now, you understand what it's like to be in exile. But even if you haven't moved away from somewhere physically or something like, as a Christian, <laughs> you need to know we're all exiles. We are, like we, we, we don't belong here. This world is not our true home. And I think we all feel it, like something just feels off in our soul, like we're drawn to something more. If you've ever felt that, that's what you're feeling here. You ever feel like you're the only one raising your kids in God's way? You ever feel like you're alone and isolated because of a stance that you took? See, as Christ followers, it's easy to feel like aliens. That's because this world is broken and it's not your ultimate home. You're in exile. We're citizens of a different kingdom. In fact, that's exactly what Hebrews chapter 11 says. Hebrews 11 says that we are strangers and exiles on this earth. And so the question then becomes, how are we going to live our lives in this world and not withdraw from the world, but also not become just like the world? Or better said, my question in the beginning, how do I live as a citizen of God's kingdom in this world? How do I live? Like, 
Like the ways that he's calling me to live, the standards and the, the, the culture that is set in God's kingdom. How do I live in that way but here? Well, this letter tells us. And what I would say is what he's saying to the exiles in Babylon is the same thing he's saying to us here today. How do we live as a citizen of, of, of God's kingdom here on this earth? First, live and thrive. Live and thrive. What he's telling them here applies to us. He's saying integrate and excel. Integrate into society and excel. And you're like, I don't know. I've never heard that in church before. I'm going to show it to you. You've heard the statement, I'm sure, in the world, not of it. Haven't you? You've heard that? It's a good statement. It's right. It's good. It's true. It comes in part from a prayer that Jesus prayed in the book of John for his disciples. But for, for our purposes here this morning, I want to flip that phrase to place the emphasis where Jeremiah 29 does. And the phrase would go like this. We're not of the world, but we are in it, <laughs> right? We're not of it, sure. We're of a different kingdom, but we are in this world right here, right now. So how do we live as citizens of God's kingdom in this world? The same things he's telling them apply to us. We're to be good citizens, Romans chapter 13 backs that up. We're to pay our taxes. We're to, we're to give honor where it's due. We're to respect our government leaders. We're to pray for our government leaders. So we're, we're good citizens. We, we don't hide or shelter from society. There's such a temptation just to hide as little hermits in our little Christian bubbles and different things like that. That's not what we're called to do. Jesus called us salt and light, right? What does salt do? Salt adds flavor. Salt makes things better. And then he calls us light. What does light do? Light invades the darkness. In fact, Jesus paints a picture in that passage of a, of a light pole just kind of right in the middle of the city that's just piercing through the darkness and bringing sight. That's what we're called to do, not hide out in our little Christian bubbles. We're also to not only be good citizens and not hide or shelter, we're also called to strive to be the best. And you're like, that one sounds weird in church for sure. I know it. We're to strive to be the best. Look at Daniel's life. They excelled in what they're doing. So if you own a business, man, be wildly successful and give a lot of money to your church. <laughs> right? If you play a sport, teenagers, be the best. In school, study hard. Do the best that you possibly can. At your job, be known as a great employee who does the right things and treats people right. Excel. Don't settle for mediocrity. I think too often in Christian society, we have settled for mediocrity under the false banner of humility. You know, we are to excel. We are to be leading out in society. Colossians chapter 3 agrees. Whatever you do, work hard as though you're working for the Lord himself. So strive. Do the best that you possibly can. Right? Do the best that you can. And then also draw appropriate lines. That's what verses 8 and 9 says. Like, have some wisdom for sure. Know what culture's trying to do and be ready to, to, to recognize the false message and the false prophets and the false teachings that our world is constantly cramming down our throats and draw appropriate lines. Know the word of God and know where you stand. Protect yourself and your family from the false gods and false teachings of our world. So that's how we're to live and thrive. Live and thrive in this world. And don't forget to pray for the world. 
what he told the people in exile. Pray, seek, and work towards spiritual renewal for this world. See, Jeremiah's words sound a lot like Jesus' words. Jesus said to the people living under Roman oppression, he says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's the essence of what it means to be a Christ follower. I mean, look at Jesus' life on the cross as he's hanging there in his final moments. What's he doing? He's praying for those people who are killing him. Pray for our enemies. Pray for our world. Yes, we're in a broken world, but we should live with a singular focus to see this world turn to Jesus. We're going to leverage our lives and our resources and our talents and our gifts and everything towards that end. That's what Matthew 28 says, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Like, that's your job. Do that. Church, you got to hear me. This is, this is so important. We were never intended to isolate ourselves from people who need Christ. You are surrounded by people who need Christ, and you are to be salt and light and go to them. Yes, we're not of this world, but we are in it. So live and thrive and point people to Jesus. That's what he's saying for us to do. So as, as citizens of God's kingdom in this world, we, we live and thrive, and we're going to be the best citizens, the best Christians, the best examples of Christ we possibly can be in this world. And then finally, we're going to trust God. We're going to trust his plans, that he has good plans that also include pain. That's the hard part. His plans include pain. Don't believe people who would tell you that God will keep you from suffering or hard times. Don't believe people who like to pull this verse out of context and hang it up here and say, God has good plans for your life, all prosperity and all good and all health and all success. That's just not true. Look at it in the context of what he's saying here. Times may actually get harder before they get better. And you may experience that. But this letter is is better than just pulling this out and dangling it over here saying he wants nothing but your good and your prosperity and all that. It's better than that in that in the middle of your pain that I know that you face every single week, you have a promise straight from God that he's gonna bring you through it. He's there with you. Do you see how that message is better? In context, it's better. God himself promises to bring you through it. See, the promise here in this passage of future blessing, it doesn't negate their present pain, does it? Like they still got it. They're still in exile for 70 years, but more importantly, their present pain does not negate the promise of future blessing. God has promised it, and you can bank your life on it, that he has good plans for you, not for disaster, but for a future and a hope. Jesus promises us in John 14 that, that, that he promises a future home with him in heaven. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're promised that we're going to reign with him. Those who seek him will find him, and those who find him will be restored. That's the great theme of all of Scripture, by the way. The restoration of all of creation through Christ Jesus. From the first pages of the Bible, that's always been his goal. You see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God already had a plan when sin entered the world to send Jesus, the Savior of the world, to come in and meet it head on and defeat it so that we could be restored, so that we could have future and hope. 
You remember the part in Jeremiah chapter 29? It's verse 5 and 6. The part that talks about marry someone, find somebody to marry and have some children and then find somebody for your children to marry so that they can have children. You remember that? What's cool is in Matthew chapter 1, you see the genealogy of Jesus. It's that chapter you usually skip over in your reading plan, right? In that chapter, the genealogy, the lineage of your Savior, the Babylonian exile is mentioned specifically. And not only that, there's a couple of guys who are mentioned. That King Jeconia, he was the king that was king of Jerusalem during the exile. And then a guy named Zerubbabel who was appointed the governor over the Israelites whenever they return at the end of the exile, they return back home. What you can see clearly in the genealogy of Jesus is Jesus' own family line present in the exile. In the midst of it all, his own lineage, his own family is there. That's why God says, I need you to multiply and I need you to have children because I'm sending a savior through you. I'm sending one who's going to restore not just the people back to Jerusalem. I'm sending someone who's going to restore all of creation back through the work of Jesus. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He put on skin and bone. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't. He died a death that we should have died. And when he did, his death sealed the deal. Just as we just celebrated through the Lord's Supper a little bit ago, his death secured your restoration your future, and your hope. And the same promise that is made in Jeremiah chapter 29 is the same promise that's made to every single person through the work of Jesus. All who seek him will find him. That's a promise. And all who find him will be restored. That's true because of what Jesus has done for you. So a couple of Sundays ago, uh, me and Abby, we were driving down to Galveston, Texas, uh, to get on a cruise, um, take a little time away. But the, but the drive, it took forever. I hate to ride in the car. I'm the worst at it. I'm worse than a little kid. Like, I'm just complaining the whole time. I get cranky. I need snacks, you know. I just hate riding in the car. I don't enjoy it. But as you put it in your little map and it's counting down the time and all that, and you see your little dot getting closer and all that, like, you just know with every mile... I'm getting closer. <laughs> if you ever been on a road trip, you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you grew up like running track or something like that. You ran a race. You know what I'm talking about. There is a finish line. And even though you can't see it, well, you know that it's out there. You're not just running towards nothing. You're running and it's still coming. The finish line is still coming. And so you need to know as Christians, we are running toward that finish line the end of the 70 years when all things are gonna be fully restored and made right. So we're not just running in this world and in pain with no finish line in sight. That's what's called hell. We're running toward a finish line and the day that we'll leave Babylon and we're gonna step through the gates of the holy city. So I need to ask you, do you know Jesus as your savior? Or are you just running <laughs> endlessly in pain because of what he's done you don't have to do that God promises a future and a hope that's only found in him 
and you place your trust and your faith in him and in his, his cross and his empty grave that he did on your behalf, you place your trust in him. You declare, I'm making Jesus the Lord and Savior of my life. I'm asking you, God, to save me. If you do that today, right here, right now, scripture is clear, you'll be saved. You go from being an outsider to an adopted child of the king. That's the good news. And so I wanna encourage you, if you've never done that, today is that day for you. Today is the day of your salvation. Why not trust him today? Why not? But if you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to ask yourself that question that we've been wrestling with this morning. How do you live in a world that's not your ultimate home? And the answer here is clear. You're gonna live, you're gonna thrive, you're gonna trust that God has a better plan. And one day, you're gonna be fully restored. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.